Okay, Generative Energy, episode 88 with Georgie Dinkov. How are you, sir? <laughs> fine, fine. Still awake. Yeah, well, tell us a little bit about any, I mean, anything noteworthy about your second trip to Bulgaria. Um, uh, it's just the mood had generally worsened, you know, uh, over the course of just a week. And I think now it's even worse, given what's going on in uh, the war in Ukraine. And basically, like, now the Nordstrom pipelines have been blown up both one and two mm-hmm. um it doesn't directly affect bulgaria because it's in the southeastern corner of europe so we're probably going to get some gas and you know uh, through greece but basically the overall feeling is that things are things are not moving in the right direction uh and if if there is if war breaks out that bulgaria may may get involved because now the nato is is stationing troops in uh romania which is a direct northern neighbor of bulgaria uh, and in general, Bulgaria is like basically the, the the northeastern portion of Bulgaria is only about a hundred miles from from you know from where the fighting fighting is going on right now, so it's fairly close. But the the general mood is that the economy is crap. Basically, like if if the European Union decides for whatever reason to pull the plug on us on Bulgaria, um, people will just have to go back to surviving the the way they did in the old days. And I think that's that's kind of what people have been doing over the last ever since the pandemic started. Uh, the mood is basically that the government is a sham. Um, and I know you go to any country, they'll tell you, like, the politicians suck, you know, nothing's going right. But in gen- the mood is different now. The mood is that the government is working against the people and the people have basically have to find a way to basically survive on their own um, despite the government's best effort to, you know, to destroy them. Um, so we'll see what happens. I mean, I, I don't think there'll be any uh, social unrest in Bulgaria because Bulgarians, a lot of them have like houses in the rural areas and they have like firewood and whatnot. So they will probably find a way to uh, survive the winter. I'm not so sure about Western Europe. Do you do you, uh, want, do you want to run down yeah. that pipeline attack just real quick? Like, uh, so what, it's a, it, it's a way for Russia and Europe to transfer gas and then it was... Well, it's a, it's a one-way thing. It's, uh, okay. it's Russia transferring gas to, to, gas to Germany. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's basically passing through the Baltic Sea, and there was Nord Stream One, right? And then there was also Nord Stream Two. So Nord Stream One had been operational since I think two thousand four, two thousand five. And then they built another pipeline, right? We I mean, have to understand um, Western Europe, with the exception of maybe Norway, and and you know partially England, but really not not entirely. Basically, in, uh, in the entire Western Europe that we think of as the cradle of civilization of the Renaissance and everything that, you know, that sort of like spurt mo- modernity um, is really based on sort of like cheap natural resources coming out of Russia. Mm-hmm. It's always been that way. And that's why it's always been natural for, you know, if there's any war, it's usually the West trying to conquer Russia because they need the resources. Russia has never tried to conquer Europe. Uh, some people will say, well, that's not true. You know, after the Cold War, the, the evil commies try to you know, take over Europe and, you know, they, they they went as far as West as like Czech Republic and Poland. Um, but, you know, there's we can we can argue about that. But I, I think it's the evidence is solid that historically, even if you accept that this was an, an aggressive act, Russia has never tried to. You know, it's culture and, you know, science and whatnot. Uh, but then after, you know, during the, the Soviet Union, uh, Russian science really had its own renaissance um, and, and it was booming. So so anyway, so basically, the you know, the, the way Western Europe operates and it's ve- the very reasons for, the, for its existence in its current complex form 
is access to cheap hydrocarbons uh, from the, from Russia, mostly from Russia. In other places too, but mostly from Russia. Now Norway has its own, uh, you know, sources there, and you know that's uh, the reason why why it's one of the richest country uh, in terms of GDP per capita in the world. It's got its own sovereign investment fund based on mostly oil, oil, oil and gas. Um, you know, the UK has some um, export has, has some um, oil uh, access to oil resources in the in the Northern Sea, just like Norway does. Uh, but the rest of Europe is basically, especially Germany, like the German industrial engine, which is what's powering the European Union uh, right now, and it has always been, uh, even even you know at the beginning of the 20th century, even before World War One, uh, basically was based on you know coal within Germany and also basically you know um, oil from from Russia, um, especially you know after the second half of the 20th century. So now with all of this being gone. Uh, basically, Germany is even with with if the United States supplies liquid natural gas to replace what's been lost, it cannot replace all of what what Russia has been providing. Um, so, best case scenario, you're looking at a contraction of German industrial output of at least thirty to forty percent, mm, oh. three zero to four zero, not thirteen to fourteen. Um, and that's that will be devastating. I mean, I, I I'm not sure if the European Union can survive after this winter simply because. It's it's a it's a uh, you know public secret that the southern European countries are basically insolvent, um, including France. Even though France thinks of itself as one of the leaders of the European Union, uh, but you know Portugal they used to call them what the pigs. Uh, Portugal, Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain. Uh, if you remember the crisis back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, mm. uh, those four countries they called them the pigs as the abbreviation because they were basically insolvent financially, and then Germany bailed them out. Um, and now if, if the German economic engine sputters or gets shut off partially, even completely, there is no more EU. There's just, just no way these countries, they have no reason to be there, basically. Um, and there's nobody to bail them out. China is not going to bail them out. Uh, the Chinese people have already realized that a lot of the loans that are given as part of the Belt and Road Initiative are not going to get repaid. <laughs> and perhaps the most um, uh, notable recent example is, is what happened in Sri Lanka. Um, I don't know if you remember a few months ago, they basically sacked the government, the, the president ran away, and then there was essentially a coup, and people stormed the palace, and basically there was a, there were power outages, water outages, food outages, uh, uh, whatever, you, whatever you can imagine in terms of like a societal collapse, it happened in Sri Lanka, and that, that happened after the Chinese refused to extend, uh, to give actually another loan to Sri Lanka, they've already given it several, and the, but there's been no payment. So now, you know, basically the IMF, I think, also refused to extend uh, to, to give another loan to Sri Lanka. So they were at the, at the road's end. Um, long story short, even if that worked for Sri Lanka, which is still relatively close to China, it, there's, I don't think this is going to work for uh, European countries. And if, even if China is willing to actually help, the United States is demonstrated by the bombing of the Nord Stream 1 and 2, which, let's face it, it's obvious who did it. Only a highly technologically sophisticated state actor uh, such as I, I don't exclude the possibility that, that the UK actually did the direct work, but we know who's who's calling the shots and pulling the strings. India, but, uh, clearly, India has the technological. Advantage. Putin, no, he's definitely sabotaging <laughs> his own pipelines, even even though he can turn off them off at any time. Yeah. <laughs> but the United States, just as as they said on record, both Victoria Newland and Biden said they will not allow <laughs> Nord Stream One and Two yeah. to basically continue functioning if Russia invades Ukraine. Uh, they're, they're going to do the exact same thing is if they feel like the you know certain European countries, especially the larger ones, are getting a lifeline from China. 
uh, they will find a way to actually stop that. Um, so I don't know. I think Europe is 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 at the crossroads. The, a far right party won in Italy. Um, you know, a far right party is currently uh, in power in in uh, uh, Hungary, and a far right party is about to possibly win the elections in the Czech Republic. So we'll see. And all these parties, the one thing that unites them is they're heavily anti-EU. Now, you know, they may turn out to be just just puppets, you know, the, you know, the WF pulling the strings from behind and trying to capture popular resentment towards the EU and the globalization. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, you know, I, I'd like to remain a little bit cautiously optimistic, just the way things have been developing. I don't think people will tolerate this any longer. It's just uh, it's by now obvious that after a brief period of bonanza for the southern European countries, as they were getting free money from Germany, uh, which is really the together with the UK and um, and and uh, you know maybe some of the Scandinavian countries like Sweden, they're they're the, the cradle of globalization in Switzerland as well. Um, now basically they're realizing that you know um, it, a, a continued membership inside of the EU means total commitment, total enslavement. Total subordination to the globalization agenda. Um, in return for who knows what, they're, they're not even getting promised much at this point because uh, just the financial system is in crisis. Um, so even the globalists are now basically not entirely sure what they can use, what they can spare for bribes <laughs> or for buying politicians in those countries. So something that had come up multiple times was people would say, uh, "Why would the U.S. sabotage like their?" friendly nato allies by bombing that pipeline so what there is no there is no friendly nato allies the united states is is, is always stated basically there's the what is the strategy um the the policy of strategic ambiguity mm-hmm. um i don't think the united states has any any true friends around the world including israel i remember that israel bombed the u.s ship and nobody went to jail for oh, it yeah, or was it the independence li- liberty and Liberty, 9, yeah. 9/11. <laughs> right, but at least one of them is indisputable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm not going to say which one. <laughs> but the um, United States has no problem throwing the European Union under the bus um, as long as they basically ensures dominance or at least continued dominance of the of the dollar. Um, you know, the euro uh, about 30% of the world transactions are in euro. So uh, basically if the United States can capture that market share and turn the European Union countries into vassals, I think they will go for it. I, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't. Um, there's, I mean, um, that was actually kind of like the uh, um, uh, the policy, foreign policy of Trump. He kept saying that all of these NATO countries are basically vassals paying for protection, and the United States is the one providing most of the protection. So he's saying if that's the case, okay, we'll provide the protection, but you need to pay a lot more than you're currently paying. And that's what we're kind of seeing uh, being implemented right now. But it's, it's not just milita- militarily, but economically as well. Uh, basically, a lot of the, uh, I think the United States is secretly hoping that a lot of the German companies, and there's some evidence that it's already happening, are going to move to some of the production to the United States because it will be cheaper to produce here than in Germany with basically either complete lack of access to energy or access to energy that is much, much more expensive because it's coming in form of in the form of liquefied natural gas from the United States. But do you think that bombing of the pipeline inflames Russia? Like it, 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 it is it was the the Germany a source of revenue for them or something like that? Like what? Uh, like how would it oh. how would it escalate tensions of what 
the U.S. wants to embroil itself in some mega war with. Russia. Well, I think it removes whatever leverage Russia had through the pipeline, right? Uh, okay. I mean, there were probably some discussions behind the scenes, even though we're seeing on paper and the news media that Western Western Europe stands united against Russian aggression in mm-hmm. Ukraine. Behind the scenes, apparently, they were already importing Russian gas and oil uh, through like other pathways uh, the, uh, through China. China yeah. would buy it from Russia and then sell it to to, to Europe. Oh. <laughs> uh, and there were probably some some deals going behind scenes that the U.S. was really pissed about. That basically they continued to get you know some some sort of like continued energy supplies from Russia. If you destroy those pipelines, then basically you know those those deals are you know they're pointless at this point. Um, and then now Russia, it doesn't really have any more leverage. And basically now United States can turn to Europe and say, it's a done deal. You're basically screwed if you don't do what we say, right? And what we're saying is that we got to stand united against Russia and Ukraine because Tina, right? T-I-N-A. There is no alternative. And we made it that way. <laughs> it, it seemed like Europe was screwed before that pipeline attack, <laughs> like with the winter and everything that was happening and lack of gas and electricity problems and that, that seems it's like- been known over the last hundred years, I would say, let's say 80, that, that everything that Western Europe is in terms of its complex society, uh, technological advancement, science, uh, you know, technology, industry in general, is basically due to access to cheap hydrocarbons from, from Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's always been, I think there's, a, forget the name of the book, but basically uh, throughout history, people have argued that a union between Germany and Russia would basically dominate the world. Uh, Germany and Russia together can crush industrially both the United States and China. The, basically, uh, you know, Germany has always had the industrial potential. Uh, they're still industrially a very, very developed ma- nation, right? And then Russia would have the natural resources. China is the factor of the world, but China can do squat without natural resources. Mm-hmm. And China cannot really import them from the United States. Let's say China and Russia somehow miraculously decide to get united, right? Um, it's a no-no. Basically, China needs access to hydrocarbons that are close by. And those hydrocarbons are mostly coming from Russia. Uh, so a, a union between Germany, Russia, and China, which is uh, there's called the, Eura- the Eurasian theory. Mm. Um, it's been uh, basically every geopolitical strategist out there acknowledges that whoever controls Eurasia controls the world. So the United States will do everything possible and actually successfully manage to prevent a true unification at least economically, between the Soviet Union and China. That was the Nixon's China policy, basically, when he basically went out, out there and convinced the Chinese to start implementing uh, capitalist measures. And they said, the U.S. will finance it, will give you the know-how, will give you the you know uh, the financing, right? Uh, so that basically you, you can develop yourself and stop being an agrarian nation. And, and he managed to essentially turn the, the Soviet Union and China against each other. So that was step one. Uh, but... Since the Soviet Union collapsed, Russia and Germany were causing up to each other. Uh, Germany knew it needed access to the Russian resources. Russia said, look at Germany. Everything that we, imp- that we import technologically in Russia, especially the cars, right? It's, it's you know, you go, to a, you go to any Russian city, the richest people are all driving BMWs and Mercedes. Probably same in the States. Maybe not so much, but most certainly in Russia, right? And actually any European country. Um, and, uh, you know, they were causing up to each other and, and the United States decided it would do everything possible to prevent that. So there, there have been several articles uh, on Zero Hedge, on Unz.com and, and even foreign policy magazines saying that the true war there in Europe is against Germany. 
It's not against Russia. It's basically using Ukraine to get Russia to attack Ukraine. But ultimately, the end goal is crushing the European economic engine, which is Germany. And this basically prevents the unification, at least economically, of Germany with Russia. Um, and, and you know, that for the United States ensures that the, the EU is kaput, most likely. So they would at the very least get the, you know, the probably gobble up that share of, of world trade that will be in euros. That will be done in dollars. Um, and then basically, you know, uh, leaves China and Russia as partners, but they don't like each other. <laughs> so it's their only partners because they don't really have any other, uh, any other alternative. So the United States is hoping that, you know, if need be, and of course they'll continue to meddle in, in the meantime, but they're, they're hoping that if need be, that alliance, current alliance can be broken, um, you know, more easily. Uh, because there's already animosity and there's already, it's been going on since the 70s, since that initial uh, cooling off of the relations happen well, to actually challenge uh, the United States economically at least according to the US was if, Ger- if if Russia and Germany had formed some kind of economic alliance you broke up a little bit there but I think we got most of it guys I tried to upgrade my internet at the beginning of the week and the, the internet company is extremely incompetent and they couldn't turn on the higher speed after like a week of trying <laughs> so uh, this is the best we can do right now it's probably going to pause a few times during this uh, this chat but we'll just go with it um, okay is there anything you wanted to mention talk about before we get into the articles did you want to mention the chat with Tucker or do you care uh, I don't know. I mean, I've, not many people have emailed me about it. <laughs> I mean, I've had several podcasts, um, you know, uh, in, in addition to his. So uh, we, we both talked to Kitty. I don't know how to say her last name. Martone. The uh, Martone. Yeah, yeah I'm, ho- I'm probably I'm probably going to have another one uh, with her with her soon again. So uh, yeah, that was a nice one. She's super so cool. we'll see. But yeah, I mean, Tucker Goodrich is uh, another uh, anti Pufa enthusiast on the uh, enthusiast on the internet, but he seems to be proposed. Uh, he seems to be a proponent of the low carb slash paleo that claims to have been on it for years. Um, claims that you know the benefits of that exceed the benefits of the high carb diet. He thinks that in fact the high carb diet can be dangerous if you overload it with Pufa, and he advocates. Uh, you can watch the podcast if you want. I don't want to put. Uh, words in his mouth, but that that was my takeaway. He's saying that you know you should go on a low carb diet so that you can actually start oxidizing more fat, which is true, right? We've talked about it several times. Uh, but Pete, uh, you know the, the the metabolic theory, at least from the Peterian perspective, is that uh, you don't want to do that because floating when you basically are you know uh, upregulating lipolysis, uh, most of the fat that gets released into the bloodstream is PUFA. And there are multiple studies demonstrating that a lot of the damage that's done in, in during chronic diseases, especially things like diabetes, kidney damage, liver damage, and whatnot, is done actually by circulating PUFA in the bloodstream. So the, the metabolic approach, the PEAT suggestion is uh, keep lipolysis low. Uh, you know, at least don't have excessive lipolysis, right? Keep keep lipolysis to down to the baseline level, and then support the liver, support thyroid function, and over time, basically, since there is always some baseline lipolysis, over time, basically, your liver will be, if it's healthy enough, will be able to glucuronidate the PUFA, and it will be able to pee it out uh, or excrete it through, uh, you know, stool and whatnot. Uh, and Tucker is saying, uh, no, that's too slow. And, you know, basically, if you have, if you eat a lot of sugar in the meantime, it's going to cause oxidative stress, which is really reductive stress. Um, and basically, you know, it's going to peroxidize uh, a lot of the puffy in the tissues. Now, the peroxidation of puffy tissues is true, 
But the as we now know, the oxidative stress is actually reductive stress. So if you're loading up on the sugar and it's causing, quote-unquote, uh, reduct, uh, oxidative, but it's actually really reductive stress, it's because the electron transport chain is not working properly. And in, in that case, if you check, uh, basically, in almost all of these cases, it's either, you know, basically a low NAD to NADH ratio and or low thyroid function. So we actually discussed it during the podcast saying, oh, why not take T3? And he says, well, the primary function of T3 in the body is to actually support car uh, you know, glucose oxidation, which I fully agree with. But he's saying that's we don't have any solid evidence that having high T3 is actually beneficial. The reason we have this range for T3 is because it was derived from people who are on a relatively high-carb diet. He's saying that if we actually include people who are on a low-carb diet, uh, he, uh, he acknowledged that low-carb diet will lower T3, but according to him, that's perfectly healthy, and that's how you, it's supposed to be since you're not consuming carbs. Um, and I brought up the fact that you know low T3 and lower heart rate and low temperature in generally in general are associated with old age and frailty and you know disease. And he said, well, that may be true, but it doesn't mean it's the case in young and healthy people. So his claim is that it's perfectly fine to be have low T3 and low temperature as long when you're consuming low glucose because you'll be ox and for their oxidation, you don't need as much T3. Um, I don't know what to say to that. I, you know, it's it's a claim that that I have not seen any evidence for. It, All the evidence that I've seen is that lower lower basically heart rate and lower temperature in general are not are not um, signs of good health when they're accompanied by low T3 because sometimes you can have high temperature and high pulse but they're due to high adrenaline and cortisol the high stress hormones which is not a good not a good situation and isn't it that position negates like the importance of CO2 and also the production of steroids which depend on T3 like I don't know. Yeah. It seems a little bit myopic we kind of touched upon that about, about the carbon dioxide um, and uh, I don't think he gave an answer to that basically that i think the topic was changed but overall his his take was uh he knows plenty of people on a low carb diet that are doing just fine he mentioned a, a very a highly uh, you know very very famous competitive athlete who apparently uh is has been on a low carb diet for years can only train a low carb diet cannot eat carbs because if he does eat carbs beyond a certain amount, he then becomes glycogen bound and he's basically, he cannot train because after his glycogen runs out, then he hits a wall. That's, I think this, this is actually Tucker's expression, hits a wall. And then he has trouble switching over to the to oxidizing the fats. Um, I think it's perfectly natural to hit a wall when your glycogen runs out. Um, but it's been shown that if you actually continue pushing, you will start oxidizing the fats, but they're not going to they're not going to provide as much energy as quickly as the carbs. So that's why on a on a on, on a predominantly fatty acid oxidation, you can only support things like low intensity, long distance running. Uh, you cannot do sprints on 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 fatty acid oxidation. You cannot do explosive weightlifting on fatty acid oxidation. You're just not going to be able to to muster up that explosive force, this muscle contraction that is needed to actually push that weight or like sprint for 100 meters with that with that speed. Um, so f uh, basically chronic fatty acid oxidation will favor the the uh, you know the glycolytic uh, red fibers in the muscle versus the white ones which are I'm sorry the the white the white ones are the glycolytic and electron transport chain and they're the ones who are stimulated by concentric exercise and the red fibers are the ones that are, have the slow metabolism preferentially oxidized fatty acids uh, but the energy generated from the fatty acids is basically uh, you know generated much more slowly uh, and 
you know, uh, c- combined with that, you generate a lot, not a lot, but you generate less carbon dioxide per unit of, of, of fat oxidized compared to unit of glucose oxidized. Um, and that has a, a number of different consequences as well. Less carbon dioxide means more calcium inside of the cell. Less carbon dioxide means more lactate, lactic acid produced. Um, and by the way, all these things are actually acknowledged in the literature, but if you look at the people who are proponents of this uh, low-carb fatty, uh, you know, preferential fatty acid oxidation, they're saying all this is actually good. Uh, they're saying you don't want a, a, a lot of carbon dioxide because basically it increases the acidity, right? It lowers the pH. Um, they're saying there's no problem with lactic acid because lactic acid is used as a fuel, right? Uh, and in fact, they claim it's preferentially used as fuel by the liver and by the brain. Now, just because they can metabolize it doesn't mean it's preferentially used. If you give the uh, the liver and or the brain choice between glucose and lactic acid, they go for glucose. Um, and there are many examples in a hospital setting where people have been given, people with liver disease or neurological disease, especially multiple sclerosis, um, and uh, people prone to seizures, they've been given the ringer lactate drip and they go into, you know, the people with uh, you know, seizures go into a fit, right? Uh, people with multiple sclerosis get acute exacerbation. People with liver disease, like basically, they, they may go into acute liver failure uh, or or um, uh, ketoacidosis. So, um, anyways, I'm sure you can find evidence for and against, but that that is the gist of the discussion that we had. That basically is perfectly okay, and you can be perfectly healthy eating a very low carb. Uh, close to zero carbs, uh, if I remember correctly, that's what Tucker said. And you can do this for years. That was not my personal experience. In fact, that's what did mean, especially when it was combined with exhaustive exercise. Tucker claims that for him, it's, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And he's saying that he can run, he can do a lot of, uh, you know, very you know long duration type of exercises while being on a low carb diet. Now, I kind of believe that, but I don't agree with the statement that this is healthy in the long run. Yes, of course, uh, when you start oxidizing fats, they are the fulfill for things like, you know, long distance running because um, some, you know, and he gave the example, which I also agree with, of the, this is so-called persistence hunting. So you can, most animals in, in nature are not meant and they're not evolved to run for long distances, right? So if you actually start chasing a deer, right? Uh, and then, of course, initially the deer will outrun you tremendously, but then it will stop and then keep chasing it. Then it's going to run again, but you keep chasing it. And over time, the deer isn't really meant to sprint, uh, to do these like short dashes of extreme rapid sprint more than, I don't know, five or six times in a row. If you keep doing that, eventually the deer or whatever other animal you're talking about, except horse maybe, uh, is going to collapse and die from cardiac arrest. And there are these videos on YouTube, which you, you can check out. They're called Just Type Persistence Hunting. And you'll see tribes in Africa and the Amazon and, you know, uh, uh, um, the, the what is it called? The, the uh, valleys of South America and Paraguay, Uruguay, Argentina, Patagonia especially. Um, and even in Asia, um, they basically, the, the natives there can hunt animals by doing this persistence kind of run. Uh, but... They're not doing it every day, number one. They're not doing it because they think it's healthy. They're doing it because they need to actually get their food. And they're doing it very rarely, maybe like once or twice a month. And when they do it and they get access to the animal, guess what they do for the rest of the time until the next uh, hunt comes up? They lie down, they eat, they rest and digest, and they have fun. Um, and, uh, you know, um, that's not the message that I got from at least from Tucker. I think he's saying that you can be, and actually you should be, on a low-carb low diet 
most of the time. Because he's saying we just weren't meant and we didn't really experience these prolonged feasting periods uh, in our evolutionary history. It was mostly fasting and then brief periods of basically finding food and, and eating it and, you know, pro- procreating. And then, like, the whole cycle starts again. I don't know. I'm, I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not an archaeologist. I don't know which way the evidence points. But uh, to me, the medical evidence is clear that, and now it's been coming out lately, over at least over the last uh, year, especially 2021, uh, we discussed several studies coming out of very renowned metabolic research centers, such as University of California, San Francisco, which used to be one of the biggest proponents of low-carbing and intermittent fasting. And now the head of that center there is saying, I don't recommend low-carb to my patients anymore, and I don't I don't recommend intermittent fasting anymore unless there is like a very specific medical reason for it. Like you have kidney failure and you cannot eat, can't really eat protein, so you have to basically be very careful how much and how often you eat. Uh, or you have kidney failure, you have other kind of other, uh, intestinal failure, you have cystic fibrosis. So all these specific conditions require may require, uh, you know, fasting over a certain amount of time, uh, but definitely not chronically. And he's saying for people who are actually trying to improve their health, he's saying he does not no longer recommends neither low carbing nor intermittent fasting. And the, the effects of both are actually uh, very similar because the low carbon puts you into sort of the lipolysis state and preferential fatty acid oxidation. And the same thing, low carb does the same thing. You basically do it, but instead of through fasting, you're doing it through overloading the organism with fats. I feel like when you're trying to set like a premise of what is or isn't healthy and somebody brings up athletes as an example, you're really up the creek on on, on what it, that, that quite, I don't, that question is so interesting, and the answer is so boring and silly, I think. I mean, a lot of the athletes are not that healthy. I yeah. mean, the, we we are conditioned to think of them as healthy because they win all these medals. I, I mean, how many times have we talked about that on this show? <laughs> have we or not? Oh, like 50 times. <laughs> it's probably been yeah. in like 50 titles of these shows. We're on 88. <laughs> I mean, our heroes turn out to be the worst amongst us. <laughs> Maybe if they're the worst, we should do the opposite. Maybe we should look for our heroes amongst the worst members of society. But I mean, it's like talking to somebody who's like extremely athletic to see if they have contact with what you would consider is, is healthy it would have to be such a shallow endeavor. Like, so, so, oh, you have some medals on your wall? Oh, that must equal health. Like, again, uh, the, how a person thinks or acts. They're usually or, extremely dismissive. Yeah. I know a few people like that, but they're like, you know, if they even listen to you, the question always is, so, okay, what is it that I need to take and how is this going to help my career? Yeah. <laughs> but it's not about your career, it's about your health. No, 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 no. <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> These medals on the wall, I've spent all this time and effort and money and whatnot to actually get those medals and I need to either grow them or use the fame that I got through these medals to make even more money, to push my career further. Yeah. So it's when when the context of the conversation is set up this way, it's very difficult to have a constructive conversation. You can point out that you know uh, every every like really really competitive and successful athlete after they stop their career, they balloon like a whale. In the vast majority of cases, um, a majority of them had some kind of cardiovascular disease and event later on in life, right? Mm-hmm. At a high, much higher rate than the general population. Uh, many of them struggle with mental disease, uh, definitely poor dental health, which is surprising to me. It's like, what does dental health have to do with like uh, with metabolic health? Well, it turns out the thyroid function and carbon dioxide are crucial for, uh, for teeth as they are for bones, mm-hmm. for, uh, which are also kind of teeth, uh, kind of like teeth. Um, so, anyways, I mean, the the you know the if, if you point out the way 
uh, one can eat more in a more healthy manner, uh, immediately the retort, if they even listen to you, is like, well, I'm going to this doctor, and he's like a Nobel laureate, or like he's the professor at this university, or he teaches like, uh, or he's at the, he's the resident, he's the attending physician at this like really famous hospital. How come he has never heard of X, Y, and Z? So, I don't know. I mean, there's only two <laughs> options. Either what I'm telling you is complete lunacy, or your doctor is not who he or she is presenting themselves to be. <laughs> I wonder what the which option is true. <laughs> okay, um, okay. With that, did, uh, which of these articles was uh, popular on Twitter, or which one did you uh, like to talk about? Uh, I think the paradox: the glucocorticoids cause inflammation. And especially because there's also the, the second part of it, which an insulin apparently is anti-inflammatory uh, and specifically acted in uh, against the effects of cortisol. Now, we know the insulin and cortisol are opposing to each other, right? Cortisol, the glucocorticoids, raise blood sugar. Insulin lowers it, right? Uh, cortico, the, the cortisol blocks the oxidation of sugar, promotes the release of fat. Insulin is the exact opposite. It's anti-lipolytic. It supports the oxidation of carbs, Right. Uh, but the one thing that I guess nobody expected is that cortisol, the, both the synthetic glucocorticoids and also the endogenous cortisol we produce, the mantra, if there is one thing that is undisputed currently in medicine, is that these things, they're basically 100% anti-inflammatory. I don't know if there's any condition when you end up in a hospital, whether it's infection, uh, whether it's chronic disease and whatnot. If you end up in a hospital, chances are at some point you will be prescribed some kind of a glucocorticoid. Uh, and the explanation always is to dampen inflammation. Um, a few months ago, maybe, uh, I posted a study demonstrating that actually synthetic glucocorticoids and in general glucocorticoids, while you're administering them, right, and when you stop, basically they, the expression of the enzyme COX really increases, the cyclooxygenase, which means that even if they're anti-inflammatory, as soon as you stop them, because of the upregulation of COX, you'll be, you'll be producing a tremendous amount of prostaglandins, so you'll end up in a much more inflammatory state as than compared to what you were before you started taking the glucocorticoids. Now, some doctors say, well, we have to do something, right? The patient comes here, their joints are swollen, uh, they're, or, or they're, in, they're in danger of like getting into sepsis. Now, sepsis is a condition where glucocorticoids are like the standard of care, especially dexamethasone. So if there's any suspicion of sepsis, you immediately get put on, you know, IV drip of some kind of a glucocorticoid. Um, so the doctors, you know, based on that study, the doctors will say, because I've talked to some doctors about it, they're saying, okay, even if that's if that's true, that's kind of like makes sense because if you're doing, if you're giving something that basically really dampens inflammation, the body may have a rebound effect and then go into the other extreme afterwards. They're saying, but it's justified because we need to take care of inflammation, and inflammation only happens after you you discontinue the glucocorticoids. So there's a concern about chronic inflammation. You just have to keep him on a on a chronic dose of glucocorticoids. You know, maybe lower dose. You know, the upper regulation of COX wouldn't matter because they're always on a glucocorticoid. Well, this study actually shows that while you're taking the glucocorticoids, whether synthetic or even you know elevated endogenous cortisol, yeah, basically the body starts upregulating a number of different inflammatory pathways, but above all, the TLR receptor family, and basically even the authors of this study are saying that the glucocorticoids, whether synthetic or natural, are basically increasing your susceptibility to endotoxin. 
Um, and they're saying this may be the reason why, despite dexamethasone and other glucocorticoids being standard of care for sepsis or the cytokine storm or the multi-organ failure that we're seeing in COVID-19, right? Anyone? Uh, uh, basically, they have failed. I mean, the, uh, I don't even know them how they became standard of care, but this study is saying that, and I confirmed, that basically the large clinical studies that looked at how you can actually treat sepsis, the, the glucocorticoid turned out to be um, you know, a nothing, nothing burger. It, it did not help. Uh, and in some cases, it was even detrimental. And they're saying, well, of course you'll be detrimental because if sepsis is a condition driven, or at least initially caused by endotoxin, and the glucocorticoids are drastically increasing the sensitivity to endotoxin, of course you would expect, uh, you know, administering glucocorticoids to be actually at, at best no, but at, at worst detrimental in, you know, in, in sepsis um, and, you know, other conditions uh, similar to it associated with the COVID-19, such as the cytokine storm and the multi-organ failure. Now, keep in mind, most of the, the vast majority of patients that had COVID-19 and ended up in a hospital got a dexamethasone or some other kind of glucocorticoid. That's a double whammy. First, now we know that because COVID-19, really like the actual thing that kills people is either the pneumonia, Right or the actual cytokine storm and sepsis and the multi-organ failure. So we now know that the glucocorticoids are definitely detrimental or at least not helping for the uh, for the cytokine storm and the, and the sepsis and the multi-organ failure. On top of that, glucocorticoids are immunosuppressive. So giving them for a viral infection is probably the wor one of the worst things you can do. I wonder if the truth will ever reach, if anybody will actually start digging in this. But um, at some point, if actually we get to a point where glucocorticoids are officially declared as basically ineffective or, you know, or at, le or at least partially inflammatory, if somebody will actually do a study, a comparison of patients who get nothing and patients who get glucocorticoids and we'll see how, how they fare, I wouldn't be surprised if the majority of the patients who died uh, while hospitalized with COVID-19 died precisely because of that intervention with glucocorticoids long before they reach the point of intubation. Now, we know intubation kills, right? Especially somebody who's already uh, has compromised lungs if they have pneumonia or in general, if they have inflamed lungs because of the COVID-19. Yes, intubation definitely does not help, but it, it happens in a relatively, uh, in a, I shouldn't say small percentage of people, maybe 10 to 15%. Uh, but not everybody who is intubated was died. The other 85% to 90% that died were not intubated. So what killed them? Chances are it was the glucocorticoids administered because they suppress the immune system further. These people already have a viral infection. And the, basically these, these glucocorticoids were, you know, specifically for this condition, COVID-19, which is known to be driven by endotoxin and serotonin. In this specific case, glucocorticoids may have may turn out to be uh, basically, uh, you know, a death sentence. Precisely the thing that should not have been done. Uh, Cortisol or glucocorticoids as an anti-inflammatory, let me see if I have this right. Like when a, a, a cell fails at respiration, it can start producing cytokines and those leak out to the blood. And then those cytokines can activate like the hypothalamus, the pituitary and the adrenals. And then the response to that is obviously w one of the hormones increasing cortisol. And that's an anti-inflammatory by increasing the making uh, new 
blood sugar or making new sugar out of protein and increasing the yeah. blood sugar. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Supply energy to the cell and basically dampening inflammation by suppressing further production of cytokines. So at least that's what I thought. However, if you're increasing endotoxin permeability, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. also because that's what cortisol does, all the corticoids. Uh, compromise the gut barrier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in addition, you're increasing the expression of the TLR receptors. This means you're going to flood the, bro- uh, the blood with endotoxin, and you're going to increase the reaction, the reactivity of the body to the endotoxin because you have a lot more of the TLR4 receptor. So your anti-cytokine effects as a cortisol uh, will have to be, uh, basically, will have to battle against the pro-cytokine effects of endotoxin, which is already in the blood, mm. and it turns out in this case specifically that the, the latter takes over, right? Uh, so there's so much endotoxin that, that's coming into the system that the, that the endogenous cortisol you're producing, its anti-inflammatory effects get dwarfed by the pro-inflammatory effects of endotoxin and the increased sensitivity that glucocorticoids cause. Um, so it did more harm than good. And, you know, that's it's probably survivable in the case of endogenous uh, glucocorticoids because they're not that powerful. But things like dexamethasone and betamethasone and others that have affinity for the glucocorticoid receptor hundreds of times higher than natural cortisol. I mean, they, they, uh, my presumption is because because it's it's through the activity of the glucocorticoid receptor that all these things are happening. Then these things probably wreak complete havoc uh, on on the system in terms of how much endotoxin that gets into the system and how sensitive the body is to it. Um, so you know, if even the regular cortisol can do that. Then you know the situation for the synthetic glucocorticoids to me is beyond any doubt. Um, and, and you can look at the patient death data now. They're starting to come up with statistics. Every single patient in the hospital who died received some kind of a pharmacological treatment. Uh, very few of them just got to the hospital in a condition so bad that they initially needed to be they immediately needed to get intubated. Uh, most of the people basically spend a day or two in the intensive care unit, uh, and they, they they had various sort of like uh, chemical, they had various drug therapies tried on them before they actually succumbed and had to get intubated. And the vast majority of cases, glucocorticoids were prescribed because from very early on, it was obvious that COVID-19 is inflammatory disorder. So doctors knew that and they prescribed dexamethasone because it is the standard therapy for that. And then in a more general sense, this explains why people with digestive problems tend to have high high cortisol because that, that if like a that probably started like a low thyroid, high cortisol started probably before a person's digestion. And it's a vicious circle, right? Because if you have you have low elevates the cortisol, which is what happens in a low thyroid situation, that increases the gut barrier permeability. You get more endotoxin, but now endotoxin causes the chronic inflammation, which basically activates again the, the further the hypothalamus, the pituitary hypothalamus. I'm sorry, the pituitary adrenal axis, the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. Then you're producing more cortisol. More good permeability, more endotoxin, more cortisol. Um, so really, I mean, other than taking thyroid or taking something that can actually, uh, you know, restore, preferably both, restore the gut barrier, it's very difficult to get to break out of the vicious vicious circle um, <laughs> because thyroid is definitely the key, right? Because if you don't take thyroid, but let's say you heal the gut, uh, if the cortisol is elevated, the moment you stop that intervention, that it is aid to healing the gut, such as gelatin or magnesium, which both are known to heal the gut barrier, or even progesterone, uh, then the moment you stop that, if the cortisol is still elevated because you're hypothyroid, after a day or two, you're going to be right back to where you started. So until you actually address the, the core cause, the top-level cause, which invariably seems to be low thyroid function, um, it's hard to break out of whatever chronic problem it is that is tormenting you. Or the real problem is uh, shit culture. 
<laughs> or society. That's, well, sure, yeah, but that's that goes hand in hand with low thyroid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, yeah, ultimately is probably is the shittiness in the environment around us that's really causing all of this. Yeah, so you have to be like your buddy and move to the Tibetan mountains at Tian Tian Shen. Tian, where, where, and where was that again? Uh, it's it's basically it's mountain range that is uh, partially in he's in Kyrgyzstan, but it's it, part of it is in China, part, part of it is in, in Kyrgyzstan, part of it is in Kazakhstan, and a little bit in Tajikistan. It's about seven, I should say, three to four thousand miles long. Uh, it's uh, really it's uh, I think after the the Himalayas, that's like the second highest uh, uh, mountain range by uh, by average height. Um, really beautiful mountains, but uh, very difficult to access and. Uh, not much infrastructure there, which may be all the more reason to to go there and like get away from it all. I'd want to go there or uh, the remember those like phony photos of the Afghani like underground caves that they said Osama yeah, was yeah. living. <laughs> I'd want to go there or the caves. And those it seems like the only only reasonable places to go. I would say further down south in Mexico, what is it, the Sierra Nevadas? You, there, Mexico has decent mountains. They're fairly remote. Oh, I mean, I, you can probably find caves there too. I, be, I bet people are cooking drugs or fentanyl there. Probably though. <laughs> I mean, you gotta you gotta make some dough even in post in a post apocalyptic world. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, let's get to another one. Then we'll talk about ID Labs after this. Um, low testosterone DRT beneficial for COVID. I think that's a good one because uh, if you remember very early on, maybe like April, even May of 2021, I'm sorry, 2020, they were saying, oh, we're seeing a drastic difference in mortality rate between males and females. It must be the estrogens yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the females that are protective. And I think somebody pointed out, I forgot it was like a rebuttal of the study in JAMA said, some other doctor said, uh, I wouldn't be so quick on that because the women health initiative study demonstrated these women have a much higher chance of achieving a viral infection. Uh, so I don't, we're not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't directly state it's the estrogens. So then begrudgingly medicine said, okay, maybe it's estrogens and the progesterone somehow mysteriously interacting with each other. But anyways, let's do a few trials with estrogen and progesterone in males, right? Um, I don't know if you follow these trials. Within a month or two, all of the arms that were with estrogen got canceled. And <laughs> I haven't seen any data released, but I suspected, and it's not a funny story, but I suspected a lot of people died. Um, but the progesterone ones are still ongoing. Uh, and I only hope, but they don't specify because you can't really trust the reporting that when it says progesterone, that it's going to be with progesterone. They could very well be with synthetic progestins, but the fact that it's still ongoing tells me that the results are positive. So we, we hopefully we're going to see some, um, some studies being published or at least, uh, like a case study or something released, some kind of a data showing that, uh, progesterone is, is beneficial. Um, hopefully it's not one of the, the estrogenic slash androgenic progestins. Um, and there's at least one trial that is with bioidentical progesterone. I so, okay. Uh, so this, this yeah. study actually showed, right? So it basically showed, Oh, another thing that was, uh, also, uh, discussed during, before they started the trials was like, well, of course women are more resilient to viruses. It's the, um, immunocompetence, uh, trade-off hypothesis. Which basically, it's this ridiculous thing that, uh, again, it's another strike at regular masculine virile males. Basically, the, that medical hypothesis says, well, men trade off physical prowess 
and basically, uh, you know, resource uh, resource hoarding ability and ability to kill enemies and basically like uh, get these resources and and impress the women. They, the trade-off is that they have suppressed immune system because of all these androgens they're producing. So testosterone, even in the bodybuilding community, if you ask people that are using steroids, they will tell you that any anabolic androgenic steroid, and, and including a, a regular testosterone, they're basically suppressing your immune system. It's going to give you the cold, the flu, um, you know, even potentially lethal infection. So you should be very careful with it. None of that is true. Multiple studies have shown that the actually androgens are protective. And in fact, the only androgens, there is some truth about testosterone, but only if you abuse it in doses that are actually starting to aromatize. So it's estrogen that's really that's causing the thymus to atrophy, not the androgens. And I have a study on the forum and on my blog showing that non-aromatizable androgens did not cause thymus atrophy. Specifically, the, the one that tested was DHT. However, testosterone in low doses also didn't cause thymus atrophy. But testosterone in high doses did, as did estrogen and, of course, cortisol. Um, so it's the aromatability, uh, aromatizability of the, of the steroids that is really a concern. Long story short, even with that, the studies show that low total testosterone is a very reliable predictor if a person will either get severe COVID and or die from it. I mean, we're talking about males. And conversely, they actually found that men who actually were found to have low testosterone and were treated for the low testosterone while developing COVID, they basically, their risk of dying from COVID was restored back to, to what it was in the healthy male group. Um, so it's very difficult to argue with the findings that basically when you have low T predicting, uh, you know, severe COVID and COVID in general versus correcting low T, actually reversing the risk back to normal, it's very difficult to argue that testosterone is actually protective in males when it comes to COVID-19 and probably other viral conditions as well. And you think that's just its opposition to estrogen or like an estrogen? cortisol. Okay. And, and-, and cortisol, both. Basically, the testosterone is antagonistic at the receptor level of both estrogen and cortisol. Uh, and its uh, studies have shown, older studies, some of which I've posted on the forum, if you remember that thread that said, uh, structural requirements for an optimal yeah, anti-catabolic steroid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of the steroids that are known to, to to science now that are called anabolic steroids are actually, the majority of their effects is opposition of cortisol at the glucocorticoid receptor in the muscles and bones. And then estrogen interacts with the renin, angiotensin, aldosterone uh, system, or they go both ways, activating each other? Estrogen inhibits muscle protein synthesis. It mm-hmm. increases fat synthesis, so it will shuttle, basically, the resources going towards fat versus towards muscle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it inhibits the synthesis of DNA and RNA, which is also necessary to synthesize um, uh, new muscle tissue. Uh, it activates the adrenals. So basically, if you're if if you get a high estrogen or estrogenicity from a high dose of testosterone, basically you will activate the adrenals. You'll be producing more cortisol. Um, so there are multiple um, uh, uh, pathways through which estrogen actually uh, inhibits the the synthesis of muscle. A lot of bodybuilders disagree with that, but I have so far not seen a bodybuilder or even livestock industry that actually turns uh, its animals into into muscular hulky freaks by administering only estrogen it's always in combination with another with an anabolic steroid and the older studies they've actually seen that have used only estrogen demonstrated that estrogen by itself is highly catabolic for the muscle i think i i swiped these from ray uh, but there are i think there are a few things estrogens are known to increase the renin angiotensin aldosterone system and to produce fluid retention no um, 
But uh, but I, I just bring this up because that was uh, something to hang your hat on for the COVID stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, but, you know, the study that, that looked at the, the dosage that people got for the correcting the, the low T, they were using, physio- well, Ray, Ray's going to say they're not physiological doses, but they they use 20 to 25 milligrams daily. Um, bodybuilders actually inject hundreds of milligrams daily, and that definitely will raise your estrogens, as the bodybuilders themselves will admit and, and prove by, by posting blood, blood tests as well. And the dosage of about 20 to 25 milligrams daily in all likelihood, testosterone will not raise your estradiol levels. Uh, it may not be beneficial either because it's not sufficient to oppose estrogen and cortisol, but this is a dosage that is commonly prescribed for treating uh, hypogonadism, primary hypogonadism in males. Did we talk about this last time? Am I bringing up something we talked about? Did uh, But estrogen and, how do you say it, verbosity? verbosity? Yes. Did we talk about this last time? <laughs> That's what causes the verbosity. That's why, I mean, we, we, we mentioned it to Ray several times, and, and he said, like, that's why women produ- tend to produce, on average, three to four times more words uh, per conversation than men do. It's just something I've been thinking about uh, recently of just, like, using unnecessary words or, um, you, you, you know, like, the there were memes about people that didn't take the COVID vaccine, and it was, like, low IQ people is like, don't put that 5G in me. And then it was like the middle IQ people saying, um, give me like whatever Pfizer comes out with. And then <laughs> it was like the high IQ people were like, there's not enough data to, to support these things. But I, I know a lot of like seemingly intelligent people that just like overuse uh, words. And, and, and it always struck me as an, an, an attempt to kind of cover for like a lack of understanding. Lack of knowledge, yeah. 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 Lack of knowledge yeah. usually. And, and it's, when you don't understand something, you cover it up with verbosity or changing the topic. I mean, these are all, these are all tricks. One of the oldest, some of the oldest tricks in the political profession. Um, have you have you ever noticed a, a, a very, a politician who's been, do you know of a politician who's known for his or her brevity? Oh, um I don't. Their yeah, yeah. career is about giving speeches, right? Uh-huh. And by definition, <laughs> speech is it's not going to be characterized by by lack of verbosity. It's the exact opposite. Yeah. But and then that being, I'm so sorry we talked about this last time. I just thought about thought uh, came up in my brain. But then that being related to like so psychopathy, like uh, insanity as well. Well, because estrogen increases the activity of the tryptophan hydroxylase, so estrogen and high serotonin go hand in hand. Also, also, estrogen is a brain excitotoxicant, I guess is the word. Mm-hmm. Um, so people who have high estrogen uh, will basically have some kind of a mania or bipolar disorder and potentially even psychosis. And once you get into the psychosis stage, uh, then all bets are off. Basically, over time, uh, you'll probably start developing you know, these really bizarre ideations about how the world works. And who, uh, you'll probably think like you're being, you know, people are after you. You know that they're not. <laughs> they actually try to use the same thing on Hemingway. Uh, I don't know if you know, but like his doctor tried to convince him he's insane because Hemingway thought that the FBI was after him. Guess what? The FBI was after him <laughs> because Hemingway tried to become a Russian spy, I think in the 40s or in the 50s, uh, but he was unsuccessful. The Russians decided he's not a good, you're not, not going to make a good spy. He was way too alcoholic. Now, <laughs> think of what this means if the Russians say, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. drinking too much. <laughs> Anyways, uh, but basically, if one, once you get into a psychotic state, there, it's a very, it's a very short distance between that and, and being violent and doing some very bad things. Um, 
it's not something that there's been a, a campaign by the psychiatric industry to say that people with psychotic disease, especially schizophrenia, are perfectly safe. They never do bad things and whatnot. That unfortunately is very far from the truth. If you look at the uh, commit some kind of a violent act, not on themselves. Uh, it it cut up a lot during the last uh, what you had said, Georgie. No, I said if you look at the statistics on basically the, the psychotic people, people with schizophrenia mm -hmm. and other psychotic diseases, uh, to me it's really only one, but like I think psychotic has like four or five different psychotic diseases. Uh, more than half of them commit some kind of a violent act throughout their lifetime and usually not against themselves. Update us on Idealapse. <laughs> oh, uh, still afloat. <laughs> still, still doing like, uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, we're really trying to like develop the, the nail and hair testing. Some, some, some very exciting results coming up. We confirmed that hair and nails are actually representative of tissue levels. Uh, we compared directly with uh, analysis from uh, epidermal skin. Um, and basically the results were almost, almost identical. Um, what else? Oh, we're now developing methods to test things beyond steroids in hair and nails. Melatonin, histamine, dopamine, as well as, as as well as their metabolites. So once that happens, I think it'll be very interesting to see basically, uh, you know, we'll, we'll find out truly, uh, you know, that's probably going to be the way to truly confirm whether depression is a state of low or high serotonin. There's a number of depressed patients that are uh, participating. They're going to give. They're going to be giving us some samples, both hair and nails, through a project sponsored by the European Union. And they all of them have mental disease. Some of them have depression. Some of them have bipolar disorder. Others are uh, psychotic, have some kind of schizophrenia or other kinds of psychotic disease. So if we manage to basically measure successfully these uh, neurotransmitters in hair and nail, will be very very helpful. We've already proven that they have high cortisol. All, all of them. Every person so far that's part of this project that has come back and, and basically given us a sample, uh, we've come back with a high cortisol or at the very least high cortisol to DHA ratio. And that's something that's been published extensively in the literature if you look at the studies going back at least 30 years, uh, showing that either high cortisol in absolute term or a cortisol to DHA ratio of more than 10 to 1 is invariably associated with either metabolic syndrome and or some kind of a mental disease, specifically depression, uh, and or bipolar disorder or psychosis. Um, so that's what we're trying to add. We're also going to be adding fatty acid analysis profile because the nail and the hair, they used to be cells. They're just keratinized cells when they grow out of the body, right? Uh, so they're still retaining um, all of their fatty acids. Um, they don't evaporate, right? And they're very difficult to wash out. Well, some of them may wash out with soap, but there should be sufficient amount left for us to be able to at least look at the percentages, right? And the ratios of things like omega-3 and omega-6 and saturated fat. And then we're going to do some testing on, on basically how thing, how quickly things change. Because, uh, you know, the only way to see how tissue changes, basically uh, the uh, fatty acid composition of tissue changes, if you do biopsy, biopsy of fatty tissue. We can do that, or at least we don't want to do that. It's painful, dangerous, et cetera, expensive. Uh, but if we can show that, you know, um, or we can measure how quickly the fatty acid composition of nails and hair changes uh, in regards to change of the diet, uh, we know what the turnover is, and then we, all, we can compare that with the turnover of other tissues, and we can sort of get an estimate of how long you need to have how long you need to change your diet for before you see a significant change in the fatty acid composition of 
various organs and tissues inside the body. Um, and we also, well, there is some evidence um, which is uh, kind of reminding me, I mean, that study that's there that says pregnant can block estrogen up into the cell. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of gave, gave me the idea that basically uh, pregnenolone is now known to actually block two the two major transporters that are responsible for transporting steroids into the cell, and basically the specific steroids. And also, there's there's some evidence from another study which I haven't I have not listed here that pregnenolone changes the meta, the metabolic uh, uh, profile of the cell, and it seems to inhibit the oxidation of fats and promote the oxidation of glucose, which is expected uh, if pregnenolone can block the uptake of cortisol, which is what the study says in addition to the estrogen. It's not part of the title, but further down I describe it. Um, and then uh, hopefully we can come up with a method to, to basically quickly replace uh, or replace more quickly uh, the PUFA in your tissues by maybe combining saturated fat with pregnenolone or another steroid that has a similar effect. Um, you know, that's that's really the pro. Those are the projects that are, that we're working on right now. What you had said in the very beginning, like uh, we had talked about, uh, like a toenail analysis being generally more accurate than a hair analysis. But you had said it's still it's still it's still it still still seems to be correct. The, the amount of steroids and minerals, because we also do minerals mm-hmm. in nails, are basically several fold higher uh, per uh, unit of tissue compared to hair. The, the advantage of hair is that you can control the time period much more accurately, right? Each half an inch of hair represents about a month in the past in terms of a time period. Mm-hmm. And, and if you cut it really close to the scalp, you can actually, because the hair grows much more quickly than the nail, you can actually get your state as recently as two to three days in the past. There's actually a study showing that they gave patients some kind of a benzodiazepine. I forgot it was if it was Xanax or Valium. Mm-hmm. I forgot what it was, but it was some kind of anti-anxiety drug. And then they started testing their hair. After only 24 hours, there were already traces of that in the hair. But, you know, it really started to accumulate after about the third day because, you know, that's the, the hair grew to that point that started dominating. So, and then, so you can start, you can get a, a time period from as recently reliably as three days all the way down to as much hair as you can provide. We have we had a client who sent basically six inches of hair. Um, and we analyzed the, this entire clump of hair and that basically gave the average level of steroids over the last year. Uh, client was thrilled. So, so with the with the hair, you, you have more more flexibility for time period, right? But it's less reliable because the amount of steroids per unit of tissue is smaller. So there's more opportunity just because of a smaller amount for bigger error in the measurements. It's still measurable, but you know, it, you know, without a doubt, based on the results we're seeing, uh, you know the. Uh, uh, the, the the nail is a much more reliable method. Um, there's some steroids that don't even come up in here, specifically allopregnanolone and dihydrotestosterone. Their their amounts really synthesize the body very low to start with, but they are coming up in nail a lot more often than they are coming they're coming up in here. In here, in fact, the only times we've actually seen them in here is if a person has been supplementing with either progesterone, uh, pregnenolone, which are, which are precursors to allopregnanolone, or has taken uh, either testosterone, which is a precursor to dihydrotestosterone, or dihydrotestosterone directly. If they have not supplemented with any of these, allopregnanol and DHT do not come up uh, on the hair analysis uh, uh, in a non-supplemented person. However, they do come up uh, maybe about at least 50% of the time, at least one of them comes up on a nail analysis. 
So as far as reliability, I think it's good to start with nails. And then basically if the person, if the results come back and it basically it's shown that the person produces sufficient amount of hormones. So for a hypothyroid person, nail will probably be better because there will be more steroids there to start with. For non-hypothyroid person, both hair and nail will probably work equally well. But for hypothyroid person, hair, you may get a lot of blank results simply because hair absorbs a lot less from the blood. And in a hypothyroid person, probably the only steroids that you're going to get back, uh, it, you know, spiking up are estradiol and cortisol and maybe aldosterone. And that's it. I need a steroid analysis of the splinter that's in my thumb right now that uh, is extremely deep and painful. <laughs> okay, send me send me a nail or send me a, like a clump of hair. Okay, it doesn't so, have to be scalp. You can do beard. You can do like, uh, you know, other other body parts. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, okay, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Um, Okay, and I do coaching on patreon.com slash Danny and I'll probably open up a bunch of spots uh, really, really soon. So if you're interested in that, check th- uh, that out. Um, okay, we're almost at an hour, so maybe we should do two two more articles or so and okay. get out of here. Um, uh, this one, didn't this one get a lot of attention that deliberately self-injury may be driven by... Or am I, I got comments uh-huh. by quite a few people, but not in terms of views on actually on the uh, CC. That that's the funny thing. There, some of them may not get very uh, very many views, but it can trigger a lot of people to actually like because well, maybe they're struggling with the same thing. Well, that I occasionally look at Twitter analytics and some things that are not noted, like that you look at it and say that's not popular at all, will get like thousands of views. Yeah. And so it's uh it's really odd when that happens, but that's happened to me multiple times. Well, I mean, I, I, it's not necessarily related to metabolic theory, but I posted it because if you talk to any psychiatrist, they'll tell you, oh, it's all in your G's, right? Or it's all in your head, right? Because deliberate self-injury is, is actually treated as a psychiatric condition. Um, a lot of psychotic people, like I said, 50% of them have at least one violent act and usually not against themselves, but sometimes against themselves, right? So this will be covered by this, you know, uh, case like this will be covered by this specific study. And this specific study show that basically systemic inflammation, which they measure as the ratio of neutrophils to lymphocytes and also the platelets to lymphocytes, um, yeah, both of these, either one of them, but especially both together, were highly predictive of a future self-harm or past self-harm event. Um, and you know, if you look at the platelets uh, uh, count, this is basically something that's driven by estrogen and serotonin. That's another way of saying that estrogen and serotonin are predictive of future self-harm. Um, and then basically the uh, neutrophil to lymphocyte uh, ratio um, is usually in a case when you have some kind of a chronic infection going on. But guess what? Guess what raises the, 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 the number of lymphocytes? Endotoxemia. So that's another also way of saying that, indirect way of saying that endotoxin can lead to self-harm. And it reminded me, I haven't mentioned the blog post, but it reminded me of the study that basically when, when animals were injected with endotoxin, if the dosage was low to moderate, they basically self-isolated, right? They, they shunned other animals. And if the dosage was sufficiently high, they stopped eating and they started harming themselves. So it seems, seems that that study corroborates that thing in uh, humans. You remember this classic, uh, how does estrogen enhance endotoxin toxicity? Let me count the ways. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. But is there an explanation for why that would manifest in that type of behavior? Like why would systemic inflammation result in somebody like trying to hurt themselves? 
Um, I think it increases pain sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, uh, I don't know why would people try to hurt themselves. I guess they're starting to perceive their own body as basically acting against them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, there's a there's this phobia that many people have. It, it's been promoted actively by the medical industry that you should be afraid of your body. At some point, it will turn against you and it will get you sick and eventually kill you because your body does not work in your best interest. Um, so, you know, if these people basically are getting to the point where they're saying something is definitely wrong with me, right? It's almost like the bulimic and the anorexic people, they're hating their bodies and they're kind of trying to punish themselves. Um, so it is, it is definitely like a, I don't want to call it a psychiatric disaster, uh, disorder, but it, it does involve the psyche as well. But the ultimate cause is inflammation and increased pain sensitivity. Um, why they're hurting themselves, um, I guess they're. I don't know, attacking the thing that they perceive is is working against their psyche, and that is the body in that case, causing the pain. What about, um, you know how we've talked about like gambling or cheating on a significant other as like heightening a person's life? Like maybe they're yes. low thyroid. I wonder if that like... Uh, oh, definitely. Yeah. This is, uh, somebody asked Ray about it, but I think it's already been established by psychiatry and recognized that a lot of these obsessive compulsive behaviors, mm-hmm. they're actually, the reason they do that is because they remove inhibitions. Mm-hmm. So it's like people whose life is extremely stressful and by definition routine mm-hmm. will do just about anything for a little bit of fun. Yeah. And the more intense... That fun is the more they're going to pursue it, but consequently also because their dopamine is low, the dopamine hit that they get from such a event is lower. It's not – so it, it, just like sexual activity, basically like in a healthy person, orgasm produces a very large rise in dop- – uh, I'm sorry, very large rise in prolactin, which then subsequently declines relatively quickly over, over a matter of a few hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a hypothyroid person, they their baseline prolactin – is actually already elevated um, beyond optimal. And then when they have an orgasm, which is known to raise prolactin, it's going to raise it even more. But then unlike a healthy person, it does not decline. So this, there's this fashionable condition these days that our old friend Jibo used to consult Who? on called the uh, post-sexual <laughs> stress disorder, PSSSD. Uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, that's actually simply hyperprolactinemia, which does not abate because of hypothyroidism. And in people like that, uh, there are multiple studies showing that they're prone to alcoholism, heroin addiction, gambling, and whatnot. And ultimately, it comes down to low dopamine, high cortisol, low dopamine, high prolactin slash estrogen. Uh, you know, of course, it's not a pleasant state to be in. You're trying to remediate it by doing things that raise the dopamine. But you know, a lot of them are healthy, right? So a lot of them may have actually their own stress-raising, prolactin-raising, cortisol-raising effects. So basically, you're not, you know, over time you're getting uh, you know, much less of the benefits and a lot more of the side effects, especially if your metabolic rate continues to decline, which it does happen for most people with advancing age. I remember years ago telling Ray that uh, most people I talked to had a prolactin of about 10 and he like immediately interjected and he goes, yeah, that's high. <laughs> it was like a very high amount. And and then I think, uh, I think like a childhood average is around four or five. That used to be the average. That used to be bit of normal back in like the 60s and 70s yeah. and then they kept rising raising it gradually i think today is 22 yeah you'd be i mean messed up at 22 and, and then there's a paper on i think women where they say 14 is associated with hypothyroidism but i'm sure it's even lower than that it's also associated with nymphomania 
uh, it goes back to that basically that they, they just cannot get any satisfaction. Uh, and a lot of people, a lot of the women who are in this condition, they actually tend to have a lot of other addiction problems, uh, specifically gambling, uh, but also alcoholism, not so much opioid uh, abuse, but definitely alcoholism. Uh, almost every quote unquote, like truly slut <laughs> that I've ever met uh, had a drinking problem. Um well, I know we've talked about this before, but it's so common we might it might be worth mentioning again. But a lot of times, I'm sure you see on the forum or somebody's message you saying, "Hey, I did I took aspirin or I took T3 and my libido lowered." And I and I, often I think, "Oh, you did something to lower your estrogen. You're not like obsessed with sex anymore." And you Precisely. you interpret that as like a low libido where. Well, it's like a here's the thing: before. if you're faced with a computer, a wall, and a chair, you should not be having a high libido. <laughs> That's not a sign of health. High libido is basically presented with a desirable object of your affection. Uh, you present a robust response in return, right? That's actually a health response. Mm -hmm. That's the high libido. But if you're sitting on your chair, there's nothing stimulating you sexually. Having a high libido, I would say, is not a sign of good health. Uh, it's sign of probably of like high prolactin, high estrogen, and high cortisol. One of the three or, or all three together, because they usually go together. That, uh, that when we, last year, when we were talking about DHT and tr trying it and stuff, that was a novel experience because it, it really, if, if being very interested in sex is like down here, it was very clear to me when taking the, the DHT or doing things to, to mimic the exact effects of DHT, it really alleviated like chronic interest in sex. And of course, DHT opposes estrogen, but it was so palpable taking the DHT that it was, it was, it was like a night and day thing. It was just very clear. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've only noticed because Pete says that a progesterone should have the same, the same effects. It does, but in much, much higher dosages. So like with DHT, like say like two to five milligrams will basically put me almost in a, like a Zen like state. Uh, and, and nothing perturbs you, right, to the point of, like, annoying the people around you because <laughs> they expect you to be perturbed every once yeah, in a while yeah, yeah. by certain events. Um, progesterone could do the similar things to me, but I had to take, like, over 100 milligrams dissolved into cough rolls. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk about one more here because uh, I think we're heading up to an hour or so. Um, is there anyone that Oh, we I think the niacinamide drops triglycerides by 75% is a good one because this is something that doctors have been arguing against um, against for uh, almost a, a century at this point. Uh, everybody knows niacin. Everybody knows the flush niacin, or at least the people that are following the metabolic theory and you know taking vitamins. Um, and everybody knows that doctors recommend niacin because it raises HDL. But medicine continues to claim to this day that it's niacin and only niacin uh, that is basically capable of raising HDL and lowering triglycerides. And there is a special receptor that they've come up with, which I mentioned here, GPR something, uh, that basically is the, they claim is responsible. Let me just turn on the lights again. <laughs> hey guys, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, we, again, we tried to do this live, but my internet, I mean, you can tell my internet sucks horribly. And so... Um, Subscribe on the Telegram. People always ask me, like, where do I post content? And I try to post everything on the t.me slash Danny Roddy. Georgie and I both post on Twitter uh, at uh, Danny Roddy at HateIt on Twitter. And you can go to HateIt.me for Georgie's website, uh, DannyRoddy.com for my website. And then all a lot of the content that I've done over the years is all on YouTube. Uh, go ahead, Georgie. 
Yeah, so this, uh, th- let me just find that name of that uh, receptor. Let me say one other thing. If I if I didn't uh, stand by a, co- a piece of content that I produced or you and I produced, I'd delete it. And so I think uh, there's like this tendency in the health world to say, oh, oh yeah, I know you did that, but what's the new thing that you've done? And it's like, no, like it's like a continuation of an idea and you don't throw out the old stuff because it's still, it's still like the, the spirit of it and the information I don't deem as incorrect or wrong. And so it's, again, if I thought information that I was putting out there was horrifically wrong, I would delete it. And so that's why I haven't deleted old videos on my uh, YouTube channel because I think they're right. I mean, didn't Ray say the same thing? Like, even though his thing has changed over the years, you want to leave these things that you've said before so can people see how th- your thinking evolved. Yeah. Otherwise, you're basically stuck in the cycle of always chasing things that you said wrong in the past and deleting them. And then people will probably claim like, oh, you just don't want to be embarrassed that, you know, now you've changed your story and tomorrow you're going to change it again. And, and you want to conceal all the evidence that you were wrong in the past. Well, well that's like, well, one well, alternative interpretation of that is like somebody finding it and... Engaging with information that you you find like you, I mean you wouldn't stand by anymore you know and right. so I, I could see it, do it either way but and and I understand what Ray is saying he like you commit something to writing or something and then you this is what I know right now and I'm gonna know more in the future but um, but again like all your content you might have changed slightly or shifted in one direction or another but the hypothesis was always the same. It was the energy yeah. and structure hypothesis. It wasn't yep. that PUFA brings health and then takes it away later. It's, it wasn't like a radically divergent uh, hypothesis that makes absolutely no sense uh, yeah. from the past. Yeah, even in his old books, I don't think he recommended PUFA. He basically said that at, in only one book, I think the Nutrition for Women, he mentioned um, that there's a claim that they're, that they're nutritionally essential, right? But even there, he says that, that that claim has not been backed by evidence. Yeah, I, I mean, that book is, uh, what's the right word, prescient for like 1973. <laughs> it's uh, it's yeah. I, I I almost encourage people to read that book because it's written in a very a simple style. And if people find his new work to be vexing or whatever, they could go back to that book and at least extract something out of it. It's uh, pretty worth it. But anyways, yeah, you're right. That the, that book talks about Warburg and Albert St. Georgie mm-hmm. and energy and structure and the hypothesis has always remained the same. So, so again, I know I'm going on a tangent here, but that's why people are, I think we're so disturbed by the protein thing. Like the, 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 the nutritional stuff can shift around or whatever, or you'd use something depending on your age or whatever, but like it's, it's the same basic hypothesis over a long period of time. And so I get, again, I don't, I don't know how many people grapple with that and they're, they're disturbed by some diet changing over time. I haven't gotten many emails of saying like, hey, Pete changed 180 degrees and now like I no longer trust what he's saying. Some people complain that his dietary recommendations have changed over the years, specifically like things like uh, protein ratio, right? Uh, whether to eat or not to eat vegetables, because he mentioned a few times well-cooked vegetables that, you know, he thinks are safe. But then he got this laryngitis, right? Uh, that throat problem. And uh, did you talk to him or, about it? Like, didn't he tell you that he was? He thought it was because of he ate under some kind of undercooked vegetable? It was an allergic reaction. I think that was, he told it to Patrick Timponi. Oh yeah, Patrick Timponi. Yeah. Anyways, so this study is about how uh, uh, about an effect that was thought that only niacin could cause, could bring about. And most doctors 
that you talk to about vitamin B3, if they've even heard of it, they'll tell you niacin is the one you want to take because niacin is the one that raises your HDL and lowers your triglycerides. And there is a special receptor, which I thought I mentioned here. I don't know why it's not there. But if you type in Google niacin lipolysis receptor, you, you will get like a Wikipedia page or at least studies that mention it. And basically, there's the the the, the theory is that the hypothesis is that yeah, that's the one, the first link. Niacin mediates lipolysis in immediate. Let me see. This one. Oh yeah, scroll down. Scroll down. It says it says inhibits lipolysis. Yeah. So HM seventy four A adipocytes effectively mediated inhibition of lipolysis by niacin. Anyways, there's a specific receptor. Medicine claims that it's only niacin activated receptor. That study talks about it. There, but there are other studies as well. And then no other vitamin B three analog such as niacinamide nicotinamide riboside or nicotinamide mononucleotide are capable of lowering triglycerides because none of those other analogs are actually activating that receptor. Um, and there, I don't know if you noticed, but on the forum, there were some back and forth saying that basically people are saying, well, I cannot find any studies that niacinamide lowers lipolysis, right? Uh, because if you look at the studies, I don't think there are any direct ones with niacinamide lowering lipolysis. Now, this study showed that nicotinamide mononucleotide which is a direct metabolite of nicotinamide slash niacinamide, just a dosage of 300 milligrams produced a 75% drop in triglycerides. Now, triglycerides can come either from the food, right, when the fatty acids in the food get it, they're either already in the triglyceride, but they get broken down, they get re-esterified, right? So you're getting triglycerides in your blood either from food or from lipolysis because when they reach the liver, Whatever the liver cannot oxidize, converts back to triglycerides, dumps back into the bloodstream for restorage. Now, if in these people who are actually were fasted, um, if nicotinamide mononucleotide and niacinamide by the same extension should be able to do the same, produced a 75% drop in triglycerides, the only conclusion that, I mean, the only way to achieve that, considering that no food was given, is that... Nicotinamide mononucleotide and by extension niacinamide drastically inhibited lipolysis. Um, and since they're not activating that receptor, that's pretty much proven at this point that niacin does. The only other explanation is that the way they're inhibiting lipolysis is just as Pete mentioned several times to several people challenge him, challenging him on this, is that they, basically these NAD precursors raise the NAD levels, raise the NAD to the NADH ratio, and that is what ultimately determines the amount of sugar oxidation, um, and the activity of the Randall cycle. Uh, and also, uh, older studies have demonstrated that NAD has a direct anti-adrenaline effect. It's, the mechanism has not been completely elucidated, but by raising the NAD to the NADH ratio, you're effectively inhibiting the effects of adrenaline, which, of course, and being, being pro-lipolytic, um, and then if you block the effects of adrenaline and increase the oxidation of glucose, you would expect to see a drop in triglycerides. Long story short, since lowering triglycerides is one of the holy grails of metabol current mainstream metabolic therapy, not the Peterian version, but let's say if you go to a doctor, you have diabetes or pre-diabetes, they'll, you know, usually they'll, they'll do a blood test, they'll tell you you have high triglycerides, you need to lower them. Aside from niacin, there's nothing else on the market that currently does that. And basically, many pharma companies are in hot pursuit of a drug that can actually do that. Now, you have a relatively low dose of niacinamide capable of obliterating 
more or less the, the triglycerides in your blood. 75% drop is massive. That means, by extension, you will probably be able to improve glucose oxidation by 75%. And even though this study didn't measure it, I have another study from a few months ago, which I think we covered in one of the podcasts, showing that the exact same dosage of um, of, of niacinamide was able to drop blood glucose, um, which perfectly corroborates the finding of this study. The authors of the two studies are different. I think the previous one was Chromadex because they're the ones pushing glutidamide riboside. It was sponsored by Chromadex, and this study was not. This study, I think, was uh, basically a university study, and these people tested nicotinamide mononucleotide, which is something Chromadex doesn't want to touch with a 10-foot pole because it's a competing chemical. So we have two different studies from completely unrelated groups that don't particularly like each other, showing that niacinamide should be able to both lower your triglycerides and improve glucose oxidation. And the likely mechanism of action is lower lipolysis by raising the NAD to the NADH ratio. I just realized that my camera might be out of focus. <laughs> I, I really <laughs> hope it's not, uh, but my... Uh, anyways, okay. Thanks for that. Um, okay, any other fi- last announcements of uh, Idea Labs? Um. Not really. I don't know. I mean, it's just glad glad to be back. To I don't want to say civilization, but uh, uh, glad to be to be back because it was kind of hard running things from you know when I was abroad. Basically, the uh, the shipping staff was also on vacation. You know, there were issues with like orders accumulating for several days. People were starting to get all pissed. Of, so. All of my vitamin K orders were accumulating. No, I think yours were shipped just, just like the same day. <laughs> I told people specifically, look, this order has to go out today. Look, this is a very special order. Well, uh, the thing, I mean, not that we're talking about. Thanks, by the way. I mean, it's. do you like the quinone? Yeah, yeah. I, I, so the the thorn one, when I would t- take a whopping dose of that, it would always make me really tired. And so that's exactly what happens when I take a whopping dose of yours. But it's a more convenient because uh, I think I mentioned this already, but it's less like liquidy. And so I can put like more on my leg. And uh, I used to take those in the morning, but then I remember like after one call feeling pretty energized. And I was like, I, I have three other calls. I should take some vitamin D or K. And I took them and I wanted to like fall asleep on the desk. Yeah. So I was like, what? don't ever take them together. They're like a sedative for me at least. <laughs> yeah. I, when well, I combine D and K, I kid you not, it's like I've, I've taken like 200 milligrams of progesterone. I, yeah, I just yeah. want to collapse. Yeah, I, I, again, it took me way too long to figure that out. But uh, I, I, I start, I take them at night now and they I go to sleep faster than I ever have. And so um, that with progesterone, you're like out in 15 minutes. I think the main effect is by raising carbon dioxide because I get the very similar effects when I do the back breathing. Yeah, again, I anybody that has any kind of sleep issue, I'd, I'd recommend trying D and K at night. Um, and and again, if they irritate your stomach, putting them on your skin is annoying as that as it is. Okay, uh, you can, I'll be opening up more spots on patreon.com slash Danny Roddy. Uh, you can follow Georgie at twitter.com slash hate it. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Danny Roddy. And t.me slash Danny Roddy is where I post a majority of content these days. Georgie, any, uh, Georgie, any, any last final words? I think we, 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 we're we going to have a very interesting uh, fall and winter. And if uh, European Union does not collapse by spring, Europe has a bright future. I, I think the globalists are on their last leg. I'm only praying that they don't take us to or three before they actually go away for good. Uh, you broke up a little bit. Did you say the globalists don't take us to World War Three? 
Yeah, I'm saying they're. I think they're on their last leg. That's why they, uh, you know, uh, resorting to these desperate sabotage scenarios. Um, I think they're about to be done away for good. I'm just hoping that basically they don't take us to World War Three before they fade into oblivion. I remember. I, maybe it was the last time we had Ray on, or it was the time before. And I was like, Ray, what about a sinking of the Lusitania moment where it's a staged, uh, staged cyber attack happens, and then it's blamed on Russia? And and he was like, Yep, yep. Like he like fully agreed with what I had said, and that like that just worries me so much because I think a lot of Americans don't care about the Ukraine Russia conflict, but yeah. but they need some kind of a personal buy in with it. And so, again, if there was some cyber attack that brought down infrastructure that it was like, where were you in the blackout of 2023 uh, and it affected everybody personally and then everybody rallied and was mad at Russia, that would seem like a perfect way to get America into the war when it's not. I think this was this was kind of already tried. People have like a war fatigue. I don't think they're going to buy that. I think at this point, literally the only thing remaining is. Basically, the the elite starting war on Europe's territory, getting Russia to fight all of these European countries, potentially getting exhausted, and then basically, like you know, the elite can intervene and then try to strike. Uh, but blaming Russia, it's not working anymore. The mul- multiple, if you, I don't know if you follow Zero Hedge, yeah. but even like now, m- multiple mainstream media sites have said Ukraine fatigue is like definitely set in. It's kind of like the COVID fatigue. People don't give a damn anymore. They're like, I don't particularly care why are we involved <laughs> with this country that I, I don't know where it is. And actually, it's not even the entire country. It's like three provinces that Russia annexed after they voted that they want to be part of Russia. Why do we care? Like, let them be part of Russia. Um, and, and, you know, of course, you're not going to see it promoted as much on, on democratic, liberal media. Uh, but it's creeping in there, too, which tells me that it's so overwhelming in the general population that they have to cover it, so at least partially, because it's becoming such a big topic. So I don't think blaming Russia even works anymore. And if it does, it's not going to work for much longer. Well, I, uh, I, I feel you. I, I think we're on the same page, that Americans generally don't care about this and right. are definitely not supportive of what's happening and are probably mostly appalled. So I'm just saying, again, I don't have a crystal ball. I, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. But I'm saying if this is the war to end all wars, like this is the batter, battle of final battle of empires, they're going to have to, or I would imagine they'll have to rally the support of America for whatever they do. And if they do want to go to a nuclear war with Russia or send troops over there, I feel like they'll have to rally support. And to do that, they'll have to commit some false flag on Americans. And then that would I also- actually, you know what? I don't think they care about Americans. I think they would actually, they make, they're perfectly fine if, if America gets nuked because it achieves the depopulation agenda even better. Um, I, I think why do you think these people got all these bunkers like halfway around the world and like they're, they're preparing for something that's, <laughs> they can easily handle like social unrest and whatnot, right? I mean, they'll, they'll set the Americans and, and whatnot. I think they're getting ready for some kind of like a, or at least preparing for it, right? Because it may get to that point, like an all-out war, um, and, and they they're not gonna care. The the, the stuff that's get gets thrown out in the media and like how obvious it is and how much they how little they care what the general population even thinks about it. To me, it's telling me that they're done with trying to buy in the agreement of the American public. They just don't care anymore. I, I feel you, but you know, we are obsolete, and they're only they're barely maintaining the charade. <laughs> I feel you, but the the so say they did a false flag or something that would still play into their agenda of austerity or changing how we. Oh yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. That I agree with. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. 
Uh, again, I have no clue. This could be Danny's fan fiction. I mean, I hope it doesn't happen, but it. Uh, I just don't know why they would be so sure a massive cyber attack would happen and then it never happens. I really think it's going to happen at some point. <laughs> so Probably, yeah. yeah. And if, if, even if it's not a cyber attack, it could be some kind of like an EMP attack, right? Yeah. And then it will take out the infrastructure. They'll blame it on Putin. Yeah. Look, it's the same. If people sat down and thought for for a little bit, What's the uniting thing between the three great banes that the government convinced has, is, has been hitting Americans over the last 20 years? Terrorists, viral, the, the pandemic, and Russia. All of these things cannot really be independently and directly verified. All is this basically a claim by the government with zero evidence behind it. Um, and as long as it continues to be this way and the people don't question it, I don't think there's much of a chance of civilization survive, but I think that people are now, maybe because of fatigue, not because they're so suddenly waking up, but they're like, you know what? All of these things that you guys keep telling me, this, these remote, bizarre events that I actually don't care about anymore, right? So the only way to shake the population out of its slumber is unfortunately war. Uh, whether it's cyber war first and then World War Three after that, I don't know. I hope that I'm seeing some signs of desperation, such as the bombing of the um, the sabotage of the pipeline. I think that's truly, uh, you know, kind of like a desperate situation here because you are kind of telling, you're basically saying, I don't trust my allies in Europe that they're not going to go behind my back and actually strike a deal with Russia, which is going to end the war. And then with, you know, the West is done, right? Because the West is, is effectively losing the war because they need the war in order to cover up the financial collapse. Without that war, Everything is exposed. So if if the sabotage is happening, the elite is basically saying we don't we 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 basically situation is so fragile we cannot leave it to chance of the Western Europeans as much as they're under our control we still cannot trust them so we have to take matters into our own hands and prevent them from actually even thinking about some kind of a re rapprochement with Russia. Yeah, we'll leave it there. But uh, um, yeah, Georgie, thank you so much for joining me today. This was uh, a long time coming, and I'm very happy you and your family are back from Bulgaria. Um, thank you. What? Uh, where can people find you? What's the best way to find you on the internet? Uh, you mentioned a few times that I have a blog. The My online alias slash moniker is Heydut, H-A-I-D, is it dog, U, T is in Tom. So Heydut.me, M-E, is the blog. Feeds into Twitter, uh, my Twitter account, which is twitter.com slash heydut, same thing. And then also on the Rapid Forum, where I, Rapid Forum, one word, dot com, where I also post under the moniker heydut. Uh, but you can check the uh, forum or the blog. They're basically like it's a carbon copy of my posts. I use the blog mostly for interacting with people, and the blog is mostly for Uh, are you still there? Yeah. Okay. Just did a massive, massive thing. Um, can you say one more time your blog uh, towards the end? Yeah, it's hadu.me. H-A-I-D-U-T.me is the blog. But I think that that already got covered because the, I got the hang at the very end. Okay. 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 Uh, Substack yeah. or dannyroddy.substack.com. Uh, this po podcast is also being posted there. You can find it on Spotify. You can, I'll post it on Twitter, YouTube, and all, all the places. Okay, guys. Uh, really appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. Have an amazing weekend. And I'll probably post this on Monday, so I'll see it after the weekend. But uh, hopefully the next episode will be live if the internet ever gets better. Okay. Take care guys. Peace out. Thank you very much. Bye. -bye. Thank you.